this morning and for the next three weeks, we're rejoining our um, sort of study on reconnecting with God, reconnecting with each other that we've been looking at since um, late last year. And we've just got three more themes to look through. Um, And today we're going to be looking, as Scott has already mentioned, at worship in spirit and in truth. Now, if you were here on the Sunday evening service at the start of May, you will have heard um, Phil Savage talk wonderfully through this passage. And you'll be thinking, well, why are we doing this again? Well, it is such a wonderful passage of scripture that you can never have too much of a good thing. Well, that's my excuse anyway. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, can you turn to John and we're in chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipper the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for this incredible encounter. And we just pray that as we delve into what your word means, that we would be encouraged, challenged, and moved forward by in your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you um, just open the pages of scripture to us today? For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I was driving through Lim, I think it was Thursday, at about um, 
half ten in the morning. I'd been to see somebody. I was coming down Higher Lane. And I, I don't know if you've ever been driving down the road and you have to do a double take from what you've just seen. You ever do that? Because riding on the other side of the road was a man on a bike. But it was not any normal bike. It was one of these. So there was a man just randomly riding through Lim on a penny farthing. And you know when you double take and you're thinking, what on earth is he doing there? When's the transport day? Is it the end of June? It was a bit early for rehearsals. Um, was Jacob Rees-Mogg visiting Lim unannounced? I don't know. <laughs> and then I found myself asking all these random questions. Who invented that? And why did they think it was a good idea? You know, if I was thinking, let's invent a form of transport, and that was what I came up with, I'd be thinking, that wasn't a good day's work. But anyway, I eventually landed on the feeling that it, I felt so odd about this penny farthing riding through Lim, simply because it was out of context. It was the wrong bike in the wrong time. Well, John chapter 4 is the most beautiful passage of Scripture. And it's where Jesus speaks about what true worship is actually like. And the setting is an out-of-context encounter. It's like a penny-farthing moment. Because Jesus, first of all, is traveling through Samaria. Now, as a good Jew, it was unlikely that you would ever set foot in Samaria. Rather, to go to Galilee, you would go right the way around and take a big detour before you got there, just to avoid the chance of having to come across Samaritans. Because as the passage illustrates, Samaritans and Jews didn't get on. The Jews really looked down on the Samaritans. They thought they were sort of second-rate worshippers of the Lord. The Samaritans were, were people who were the leftovers of the northern kingdom of Israel, who then intermarried with the nations round about. And they didn't go to Jerusalem to worship. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim. They only um, accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't read the rest of it. And so there was this going back and forth between Jews and Samaritans, and they really didn't like each other. So Jesus is in an unusual context, and then he has an even more unusual encounter. He asks a woman for a drink, not something a man at this time would generally do. It's the middle of the day, not a time that people would generally go to the well to get a drink, because it was boiling hot. If you've been to the Middle East in the middle of the day, you will know the kind of heat that you experience. None of it is right. All of it seems so out of context. But anyway, he's at this well, Jacob's well, it's 135 feet deep. You can still go there today. It's now in a church. And if you've got a very long rope and a bucket, you can lower your bucket down and get a drink of fresh water. But it's not the well that is the interesting thing in this passage. It's the woman. Well, what is her story? What is her story? Well, the woman is a really intriguing and fascinating character. In church traditions, and Phil was taking us through some of these the other Sunday night, she is celebrated as a woman named Fatini. And the Eastern Church still remembers her to this day as somebody who went round as a great evangelist and had this kind of apostolic ministry. And she's celebrated widely in the Eastern Church. But from the 3rd century, people writing about this woman have always presumed that she is an adulterous woman. She's a woman who has had five men, and she's had all these affairs, and then she's now given up on marriage and is living with somebody. And actually, that, that is her story. That is what has happened. And that goes right back to the writers of the early church, like Oregon and Tertullian, then on to people like Calvin and Luther and so on. And that has been the general way that she's been perceived. But when you read the passage, that is possible, but the passage actually doesn't say that. It doesn't actually say that she has had multiple affairs, that she's done anything sinful at all. 
Now, I was reading something this week by um, an author called Scott McKnight, who offers a slightly different take on this passage. Now, I believe passionately the Bible is God's word. Absolutely. But my interpretation and anyone else's interpretation isn't infallible. So sometimes we have to go back to the the text of the Bible and say, is that actually what it says? Or have we just layered over the top of it? So I will leave this with you to have a ponder on. This is an alternative as who this woman was. So this woman comes to the well in the day. She has had five husbands, but she's bereaved. And under Levitical law, she could have had one husband who dies. She then gets passed without any choice of her own onto the brother of that husband, and then to the next brother, then to the next one, down the family line. Well, you might say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody has that many brothers. Who here has got um, families with lots of children in their ancestry? Well, I have. My granddad was one of nine. Um, I would imagine some of us might have more than that. And it's not unthinkable in that day, particularly, for people to have these enormous families. And then if somebody was married to this man, then she would just get passed along the chain. And so she comes not in sin, but in grief. She comes not in sin, but in brokenness. She comes not in sin, because Jesus never says to her, you need to repent. He just treats her with tenderness and compassion. So who's the man that she has? Well, we don't know. Who is it? It could be a Roman centurion. Somebody who'd said, well, come and be part of my concubine. Because a woman couldn't really exist singly at this point in history, particularly a young one. Because it was the men who earned the money. It was the men who provided the roof over the heads. And a woman alone would be in a very vulnerable position. I'm offering you that as a possibility. This could be her backstory. So it could be that she's been a sinful woman, or it could be that she's actually somebody who life has just dealt a really hard set of circumstances and who comes in the middle of the day, not out of shame, but to hide her grief. I don't know about you, but I find that really starts to open up something that Jesus could be saying here. So for us, when we think about those two things, if she is coming in sin, then actually it reminds us that no sin is too great for Jesus to deal with. You know, the cross is all about Jesus taking our sin. Sin doesn't have to separate us from God. And if today, actually, we know we're doing things that are wrong in God's sight, it doesn't need to um, stop our relationship with him. All we do is come in repentance and faith, and that relationship is wonderfully restored. But also, no grief, no hardship, nothing that has gone wrong in our lives actually also separates us from the tender love of God who comes and seeks us out and finds us and ministers to us. You know, sometimes I do wonder if we find it easier to look at a passage like this and say, well, it's all about sin. Because it's quite easy to point the finger at people who've done lots of things that are wrong and say, well, I'm not like that. I know I sin, but I've not had, you know, five multiple affairs or whatever it is, and I'm not doing these things. And so we can find ourselves saying, isn't it good that God saved her? Whereas when it's about brokenness and grief, and pain, it talks to me, directly to me, because we're all that. We're all broken. We're all marred by the things that happen in this world. And so they have this conversation, Jesus and this woman, and it's a back and forth conversation about water. And the the woman isn't getting it. As soon as Jesus starts to talk about springs of living water, she's thinking, well, where's the spring round here? We're in a desert, Jesus. You know, you don't get many springs in the desert. This is why we have this 135-foot well, so you can get the water out. And she's thinking on human terms. 
But actually what Jesus does is open her eyes to something that is incredible. In verse 19, the woman states very succinctly the difference in approach that the Jews and the Samaritans have. The Old Testament worship, both in Samaria and on Mount Gerizim, was repeated actions in order to honor God. What they did was they would come to the temple, they would atone for their sin, they would bring sacrifice, they would sing their praise, they would go to the place where God's presence actually resided in the Holy of Holies. But then they'd have to keep coming back over and over again. And that's the kind of worship that this woman would have been familiar with. Now the Greek word for worship in this passage is the word proskunio. And the literal meaning of that word is to kiss the hand of, And apparently, um, this word originates from, you know, when a dog licks their master's or or, or hand or whatever, as a sign of affection that they belong to them. That word actually has its origins there. So, and we've got a dog, and she is always coming and licking us. She'll lick your hand, she'll lick your face if you let her. But it's that sign that she belongs to us. It's that sign of affection. And actually, this thing got picked up, and in the ancient world, to do homage to somebody, you would kiss their hand. It was a sign that you you were honoring them. You were there in, in sort of awe of who they were. The coronation, what did William do to Charles? Same thing, kissed him. A sign of homage. And this is where this Greek word, this proskunio, comes from. But Jesus offers something totally different than locational worship. He offers the kind of worship that is all-encompassing. The kind of worship that comes because the Spirit will take residence in a human being's heart. Look at what he says in verse 23. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. It's Pentecost. We're remembering that the Spirit has been poured out. And the Spirit poured out enables us to become those true worshippers of the Lord. So let's have a quick look at what it means to worship in the Spirit. Worship in the Old Testament is always about action. Now, it is meant to change people's character, and the law states that certain things should happen in order for for the the followers of, of Yahweh, the followers of the Lord, to live justly and love mercy and so on. And the prophets seem to be constantly calling people back to that. You know, your worship is meaningless unless it changes you. But worship of God is rooted in location. It's formal. It's an action. You go and do your worship, and then you come away again. Because God's presence was only in the holy place. It wasn't filling the whole earth at this point. This passage turns it on its head. Because the Spirit will be poured out. And we live now in the age of the Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out. And so we can worship God anywhere, in any location. Why? Because we don't have to go to a temple, because what has happened? The Spirit has been poured into us, and we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is now within us if we seek to follow Jesus. But you know, it's very easy, isn't it, to turn what was always meant to be living, transformational encounter into something of ritual. You know, as people of the Spirit today, we can still say, well, give me the location-based worship. I can deal with that. I can quantify it. But I'm not sure I can deal with worshiping God everywhere in all times and in all places. And, you know, actually... Things become locational-based when things start to go wrong so often in life. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you're in a workplace and everything is going swimmingly and everyone's getting on, it can be wonderful. And you can have conversations back and two with each other and everything is, is fine. What happens when things start to go wrong? 
Go on, what happens? Anybody? Little groups form. Then if things get technically wrong, you start to get things in writing. Somebody gets a disciplinary, things get in writing, then you end up in a tribunal, you end up in court. And so things go from being wonderful and relational right the way down to being formalized. You know, there's a real danger that in our worship we can do exactly the same thing. We can go from this wonderful relationship that God wants us to have to actually becoming formal. We can find ourselves, say, coming to church and saying, well, you know, I've done my worship for today. You know, I've sung the songs, I've listened to the talk, I've prayed the prayers, I'll now go home, I'll cut the grass, I'll sit in the garden, I'll go and watch Stockport County try and get promoted to League One. Well, I actually got a response this week. You didn't get any response last week. You get in there without support for Stockport County. But ever since the Garden of Eden, what has God wanted for us? He's wanted us to be in relationship with him. That's what we're created for, isn't it? And worship is about relationship. It's about being filled with the Spirit, the Spirit welling up with inside of us so we can walk each day with God. There is a very snappily named document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But it has a line in it that I think is really profound. It says, Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Do you enjoy God today? Do you want to glorify Him with everything Not just the location-based stuff. That can be great. But everything. You know, we were made to belong to him, to enjoy his presence, his love. But sin dislocates it. It twists it. And things can become locational-based and form and structure. Now, I'm saying stuff that I know many of us have heard all this before. It's probably nothing new. But actually, to that woman at the well, she never heard anything like this. You imagine if the first time you've heard about worshipping in spirit and in truth was when the Son of God comes and opens it up for you. So what about our worship? What about our worshipping life today? You know, everything we do and everything we are called to be should be and can be worship. Romans 12 verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Everything. Absolutely everything. Now, when I say worship, and if I were to Google that that, that word, worship, what comes up? What do we think of? Music, singing, yeah. Now, singing absolutely is worship. Music and singing has always played a central role in the people of God. If you go back into the Old Testament, what do you find happening? You find the priests singing. You find um, the worshippers being sent out of the troops of God into battle. The Psalms are full of instructions to sing a new song to the Lord. You go into the New Testament and you find scriptures like these two. Ephesians 5 verse 19. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching you and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And the church has always been a singing people. We have always sung. The New Testament is, is full of hymns to Christ. Philippians, the great Christ hymn, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name which is above every name. Most likely a sung song of the early church. You go into the book of Revelation, you see those hymns, worthy is the lamb that was slain, or salvation belongs to our God, those, those great hymns of praise. You go into the life of the early church and they were singing, they were celebrating what God had done in song. 
And in everywhere that the gospel has gone, in almost every language and every style of music, songs and hymns and spiritual songs have been written. And when we sing, and absolutely sing we should, we come in praise. It is part of our homage. It's part of our proscunio, our kissing the hand of God in adoration. But it can be very easy to fall into that locational-based worship again, even when we're worshipping in song together. To think it's just about action. You know, I just sing the songs. I get through it so I can listen to what comes next. Rather than this is a vehicle for relationship with the Lord. Augustine of Hippo once repeated to have said, to sing is to pray twice. You know, when you say a prayer, you're saying it in relationship with God. When we sing, we can do the same. But we get to do it twice because music does something to us that words alone can't do. If I were to ask you, well, I'm going to ask you, who listens to music? Put your hand up. Almost everybody listens to music. And even if you don't actively listen to music, you still hear it. And it has the power to stir us, and it has the power to move us. And when we sing praises to God, it can do that. And let's not be afraid of our emotions. You know, as British people particularly, we can be very afraid of our emotions unless we get carried away. I don't think we're at risk of getting carried away a lot of the time. But it's that sense that when we sing, we can do those things. You know, I love to worship in song. Sometimes a song will come on the screen and I think, I'm not sure I can sing that today, but I can pray it. You know, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, see everything. You know, I might feel that I'm not quite there yet, but Lord, help me to make that a reality. You know, I will offer up my life. We were singing that last week, weren't we? You know, are we? Perhaps not yet, but Lord, help me to pray it in. And in some worship, when we come and sing, there is something of the togetherness of the people of God singing praise that is incredibly powerful. And there's a passage in James chapter 4, verse 8, where it simply says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But it's relational, not locational. You know, when we sing our praise together, just like we've done this morning, it can provide those times for open prayer, for the gifts of the Spirit to be used, a time when we can deliberately and purposefully invite the Holy Spirit to inhabit the praises of God's people. But worship doesn't and shouldn't stop there, should it? Worship is not just singing. That is to miss the point. Because everything that we've done this morning should be worship. Everything that the church does. But then when we go home from this place, everything that we do, what you choose to watch on Netflix can be done as an act of homage to God. What you do in terms of how you speak to your work colleagues, how you love your neighbor, how you um, spend your time or your money, it can all be done to kiss the hand of God in homage. So as we've explored reconnecting with God, how's your worship? How's that honoring of God? How's it going? Is it increasing? Are you finding more and more that we're aware that actually everything, the whole of life, is worship? Let's move on. Worshipping in truth. There are two types of truth that come into focus when we worship. The first one is the truth of who God is. To make sure we're worshipping God as revealed in the scriptures. God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Now, yesterday morning, um, the doorbell rang. And it doesn't often happen. I don't know if, if it's the same with you, but I don't find very often people just call around unannounced. But normally if they do, it's either one of our neighbors coming around, say, offering a plant or asking for something or other. Or it's a delivery from Amazon or the, the post office or whoever. So I opened the door expecting either to see one of the neighbors or a delivery and thinking, what has Claire ordered this time? Um, but actually, it was neither. 
It was two very smartly dressed women stood there. And I thought, oh, here we go. Who are these two? So a conversation ensued. Now, I'm not going to tell you who they were, but they said to me, we'd like to talk to you about the state of the world and about Jesus. I said, oh, well, that's a wonderful conversation starter. I'll happily talk to you about that. So I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Baptist minister. Um, so they, they look a bit shocked at that point. So I went on to talk to them about, you know, the freedom that I, I believe I have in, in knowing Jesus as the Son of God. Not as something less than that, but as the Son of God. And how that makes such a difference to our worship, how we worship in the truth of what the church has, has always done. I think, um, Claire, you were sort of stood in the hall thinking, what's he going to say next? Where's this going? And we ended up talking about church history, and then they sort of tried to scarper at this point. Um, I think I've probably got a mark against my name. Don't bother him. He'll, he'll, he'll go off down tangents. Um, but I said to them, just go away. Read your Bible. See the freedom that Jesus wants to bring. It's about relationship. It's not about earning our way to God. Look at the history of the church and see the truth that has always been proclaimed. So when we worship, we worship God as he really is. Because if we get the wrong Jesus, it's like going to the wrong spring. And then we won't be refreshed. We can't be refreshed if we go to the wrong Jesus. But there's another type of truth, actually. For worship to be a genuine outpouring of our hearts and lives to God, we have to be real about our truth, about who we are. We live in a society, you turn the news on, and almost every day we can see that our society is struggling with the concept of truth. You know, we, we talk about being in a postmodern or even a post-postmodern world, whatever that means. And truth is relative, it's whatever you want to believe is true, is true, and so on. And we can see that that is starting, and well, it's already producing all kinds of chaos in our society. But truth to God, well, it's the cold, light-of-day reality of who we are. Who we are without any pretense, any human interpretation, but how God sees us. The Samaritan woman, she is being taught this greatest news by Jesus. But Jesus speaks right into her heart to say that he knows who she is. He sees her exactly who she is. Whether she is this woman who's led this, this life that has been marred by sin, or whether she's this woman of brokenness, but Jesus sees her exactly as she is. Do you know that this morning Jesus sees you exactly as you are? You don't need to worship with pretense. I don't need to come and put a front on and say, well, this is who I am, because he sees it. He sees our heart exactly. And I think if we could get to grips with just being open about who we are, we would then find that Jesus is able to minister to us in such greater depth. You know, if, if this woman is coming with sin, Jesus can deal with that. If there's sin in our lives, Jesus can deal with that. He died for us to deal with that. But he can also deal with brokenness. If we come to worship and we, we continue in our lives, and actually we're just hurting deep within, the more real we are with God, the more those life-giving waters can minister and bring God's wholeness and healing and joy. Welling up to what? Well, eventually to eternal life, so that we will know him forever. But if we create fake versions of ourselves, if we don't worship in the truth of who we are, well, it's very easy to then create a fake version of God or a fake version of worship. So can I encourage us today, be real. Be real in who you are with God. He can take it. He is big enough to take our reality. He knows it anyway. But us being real allows the Spirit to minister to us in deeper ways. Worship, the reality of God's holy presence, 
demands that we are fully real about who we are. Who we are. Some words from Revelation chapter 22. It's actually verses 1 to 3, I think, not verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I just love that image of the river of God, this life-giving water flowing out. What to bring? To bring healing. To bring healing, to restore all that that has been broken and marred by the fall, by sin. But you know what? We get a foretaste of that now. When we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, would you pour again your life-giving spirit into us? We get a foretaste. And God will bring his wholeness and healing into our brokenness. So two quick questions. How is our worshipping life today? How is it? Are we honouring God with everything? Do we feel that our whole life is being lived out in worship or are we still like the Samaritan woman stuck in locational worship in whatever form that takes? Are we able to be truly real before the Lord? Because for worship to be real, for us to be paying real homage to God, we have to be real about who we are. Just as Jesus spoke straight into that woman's heart because he saw her. So Jesus speaks straight into our heart because he sees exactly who we are. Well, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. Then, Danny, if we could just do a song to finish. Could we sing um, When the Music Fades? Is that all right? Um, And then after then, it may be that actually this morning you want to come for prayer ministry or or have somebody pray with us. um, The prayer team are available They'll be, be stood over there. And if we could just leave the musicians to continue leading us in praise. Scott will come up at the end of this song just to, to close the service off. But let's, let's leave this space um, if anyone wants to receive prayer this morning. But let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you saw the Samaritan woman exactly as she was. Whatever her story, you saw it. And yet you came and you spoke incredible words of love, of eternal life into her heart. Lord, in the same way you see us, exactly as we are. And yet you call us to experience those same life-giving waters. To worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I want to pray for myself, I want to pray for each of us this morning. That we would have those fresh encounters with you. That your spirit would do a work in us. Lord, that we would be transformed from glory to glory until we are with you for all eternity. But Lord, help us to come this morning as we are. Yeah, Lord, we just thank you for your ministry among us by your spirit.